had a chance to see Switchfoot live, and those guys just rivaled them. <laughs> of course, they were about 300 decibels, so they got that going for them, but that was great. Thank you very much. Um, man, today is an exciting day. Today is an exciting day. Clock on the wall says 927. Um, to a preacher, that clock on the wall, you notice it's only facing me. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, you heard the old joke when a pastor goes like this, what does that mean? means stand up. When a pastor goes like that, what does that mean? means sit down. When a pastor goes like this during, when he's preaching, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. That's right. Anyway, um, it's 9.27, and, and so if I do my math right, in 33 minutes, if they're anything like hope, that'd be about 40 minutes, Hiawatha Church will start. Uh, we will have a new daughter. Uh, we are planned birthday. So I would just like to pray for them because I'm sure they're freaked out 33 minutes before their grand opening. So why don't we just pray for Hiawatha Church here real quick. Lord, it is an exciting thing to launch uh, another church. Uh, this being the third that you've allowed us by your grace to be a part of. And we're um, in need of a lot of churches in this city who are going to want to have more and more people be your worshipers. God, it is about that. It is not about us. It's not about uh, uh, notches in our belt. It's not about us uh, creating a, a movement of churches or a mini denomination. God, it's about uh, your gospel running forth and for new people, brand new people, to come into a relationship, a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray today for Mike and Chris, especially, as they're getting prepared. I pray you just give them just give them calm, God. Help them to know that it's not about them, but it's about you. And the God, you, you love this church way more than they do, even though it's not even born yet. And we pray for a smooth day today, a day which would excite them. So, God, we pray for Hiawatha Church, that it would be a light for that South Minneapolis area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If, you don't, if you're new to us, uh, Hiawatha Church is located on 42nd Street and 41st Avenue. And it's, if you go to the Riverview Theater, if you know where that is, uh, 38th, and, 38th Street and 42nd Avenue, go three more blocks south, and it's to your right. No, it's four more blocks south, and to your right, one, one block. Hey, my name is Steve Treichler. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Hope Community Church. I'm glad to meet some of you this morning. Haven't had a chance to uh, uh, meet all of you yet, so you're all invited to my house for dinner. <laughs> no. Um, but someday, maybe, uh, when I get my basement done, uh, no, no, you're still not all of it. You can go to Chorus House, all of you, all 500 of you, for, for dinner. If you know anything about hope, you know that um, we love the Bible here. We are not ashamed to say that. We think the Bible is a great thing. And uh, in fact, we're looking at getting new pew Bibles here shortly. And I've been doing some internet research and I came up with these right here. This is the Fire Bible. This is right off the web. When was the last time your class saw how hot God's Word is? Open this authentic-looking Bible and begin to share the Scripture for the day as real flames, real flames, begin to rise from the pages. This full-size book comes with battery-operated ignition system. All you supply are the batteries, lighter fluid, nerves, and new eyebrows. Eyebrows, yeah. Can you see that? Look at that. That thing is almost torching that lady's face. Look at the smile on her face. For $44.95. And I gave a, where I found this online, you can get this online 
uh, for $44.95. There it is. Pick me special effects firebible.htm. There it is. Your, your own fire Bible. Now, I know in, in uh, uh, we do think that this Bible is inspired. I like to say it's inspired from Genesis to Maps. We're real slow on the uptake this morning, aren't we? Well, that's really funny. Ha, ha, ha. All right. Anyway, um, and you know what? Uh, a lot of people say the Bible's not relevant. However, look at all the different things. I, I just did a simple search on Bible, and here's all things. There's a Bible here for if you're a Mac lover, which is a good thing, by the way. God bless you if you love a Mac. And t- Thank you. I heard that. Yes. And then if there's a Bible, if you like coffee, there's a Bible if you like uh, spicy food. You can get a Bible for that. You can get a Bible if you're trying to uh, start a small business. You can get one that has corn eye on it. <clears throat> At first I thought that, you see what it says? I thought it said the Pentecost Bible. And I thought, whoa, I'm going to become Pentecostal then, man. Look at the pipes on that guy. Uh, no, a pre-contest Bible. If you want to do any of that stuff. But we do believe here at Hope Community that, like those? Next, next slide. Next. You can go to the next slide. Uh, We do believe that reading and knowing and learning and studying and memorizing and meditating upon the Bible will change your life. And, and I'm, I'm unashamed to say that. One of the free things that I have when I come up on a Sunday morning is that I know that at least the Bible passage got on the screen. Because the Bible is what's going to change your life. And it really does. Someone who's been a follower of Jesus Christ since 1983 Uh, there are three elements that change your life. The Bible, the Word of God, other people, the people of God, and God himself, the Spirit of God. Those are the resources. And so we take the Bible very seriously at Hope. We love the Bible. And we have been in a study here of the Gospel of John for about a year. And we're only in John chapter 8. And we are going today to look at one of the most famous passages. In fact, it's so famous, it's even got its own Latin phrase. It's called pericope adultere. Huh? You didn't think the old guy from the Iron Range could say that without looking at his notes, did you? Pericope adultere. Uh, the pericope, which is, the, uh, a pericope is just a fancy word meaning story, but people who write uh, about the Bible don't like to call the Bible full of stories because it's, it's historically true, so they call it a pericope. Adultere, you can imagine that means adultery. Very good. You guys are quick. Not many freshmen here. Sorry. Didn't mean to rip on. I, every year I give one dig at the freshman. That was it. So, got that out of the way, and I can move on. Listen, in this particular, in this particular um, passage we're going to look at, it's probably one of the most quoted things that Jesus Christ said in his earthly ministry. And that's the phrase that, let him who has no sin, go ahead to that one so I can see it. Let him who has no sin be the first to throw a stone. And that is a phrase that is repeated over and over and over with one of the most beloved passages that we have in all scripture. It's found in John 7, 53, the last verse of John uh, 7, and it goes into John chapter 8. So if you want to flip that or grab your insert, it'll be on the screen. While you're doing that, though, I got a few minutes here. I got to share something with you. If that, is anybody there already? Who's there? Anybody got it? What do you see right next to John 7.53? 
Anybody? You see something next to John 7, 53. The earliest manuscripts and other reliable ancient witnesses, right, do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Now, I'm going to, I spent about four or five hours this week looking at that whole issue. And you're going to get it in about three minutes, okay? So uh, if you have a lot more questions about where does this, what does that mean? Did it, should it be in our Bible? Should it be there in John? I'm going to answer that really briefly, but I'd love to talk with you more about it. Let me just give you three big questions. Why the textual variant? What does that mean, a textual variant? Really, some people even, if you have an old Revised Standard Version, anybody got an old Revised Standard Version? I didn't think so. But if you did, the whole thing is in the footnote. It's not even in the text. It's not even in the normal place where they'd have the Bible. It'd be in the footnote. Why the textual variant? Does it belong in John? Go back one. Does it belong in the book of John? And then thirdly, is it historically accurate? The textual variant, I mean by this. Go ahead. All the Bibles, New American Standard, New International Version, New Living Translation. Some of you hip new hipsters, Bible hipsters, is that a thing you can call? English Standard Version, that's the new thing. Uh, that one's the most informative. It says, some manuscripts do not include this passage. Others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125, which is the end of the version, or they put it in the Gospel of Luke after 2138. It's like, holy smokes. Trike, I thought you said you were going to solve this. I am going to try to solve this. So what's, why the textual variant? Let me give you four, let me give you three reasons here. First of all, this passage, John 7, 53 through 8, 11, which is a weird, all, all of a sudden you probably can say that, why is it 7, 53 to 8, 11? That's a weird designation to begin with. It is not in the most ancient and probably the most uh, complete manuscripts we have of the Gospel of John. It's in some, but not in the most ancient ones. Secondly, it is unlike the writing of John in its use of words and style. Uh, some of that might be because a couple things. Jesus, you'll see in this story that Jesus bends over. There's nowhere else in, the, in John we see Jesus bending over. There's uh, Jesus writes in the sand. Well, nowhere else in the Bible does Jesus write anything. And so... That could be part of it. Uh, it. It deals with the the concept of adultery. Nowhere else in the book of John does he deal with that. So is that a strong argument? I don't I don't necessarily think so. Because uh, third thing is it seems to un interrupt the flow of of seven fifty two, and then you skip over to eight twelve, and just kind of keeps making sense. It's like cut and paste. It's just kind of got stuck there, and that could be. Those are the arguments why it shouldn't be. Here's kind of more of the arguments of does it belong in John or is it historically reliable? I'm going to deal with both those questions together. First of all, it is quoted by early Christians. It's quoted by early Christians. Ambrose, Ambrioster, and Augustine. I'm going to come back to something that Augustine... I like Augustine. If you haven't done any reading of Augustine, you'd like this guy. He's a Minnesotan. I think he's a really... He just is. He's a great guy. Um, uh, second, Jerome includes it in the Latin Vulgate in 4th century. <laughs> that made sense to no one in the room. But... Did you know that Latin, you know, when we quote Latin now, it sounds like, ooh, he's quoting Latin. Vulgate, does anybody know what Vulgate means? Dave does. You don't? Oh, Vulgate. Anyone know what Vulgate? Yeah. Yeah, it's where we get vulgar, which means of the people. It means common. The Latin Vulgate was created so that the people could get the Bible. Now when, we, when you read the Bible in Latin, or if you know Latin, you, you're kind of elite. That wasn't the case. It was kind of the, the butcher language of the day. So Jerome in the 4th century, that's, 
that's 300-some, translated the Bible into Latin Vulgate so everybody could get it. He includes this passage right here, okay? Um, third, very early in the first century, uh, a very early use by a first century historian, Eusebius, who said he learned it from this guy, uh, Papias, who lived from 60 to 130 AD. So he had heard this story, this account of what had happened to Christ. The church, both Catholic and Protestant, has affirmed it's used in church history, and some argue that Luke wrote it, and that it mistakenly was put here in John. Does it belong in the book of John? I'm not sure. A, a week ago, I would have said no. And, but now I'm thinking, possibly. Let me give you, let me give you two reasons why I think it could possibly belong. First of all, Bruce Metzger. Doesn't mean anything to you. I think he's a dead guy. But if you're into New Testament documents, he's like the biggest guy. He wrote a lot of books. We have one of them out here. Are the New Testament documents reliable? Is that by Metzger or is that by Bruce? I don't, is that Bruce? Yeah, okay, I messed up. Okay, he's not out here. He's somewhere else. Um, Bruce Metzger, he wrote textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. If those of you who are seminary students, you have a Greek New Testament, it's possible you have the one that Bruce Metzger put together. He wrote that the passage is obviously a piece of oral tradition that has been ear and that it has all the earmarks of historical veracity. That means truth. And then my favorite quote here by Augustine. When he's, when he's asked the question, how come it wasn't in the early ones, here's what he says. Augustine. This proceeding, however, shocks the minds of some weak believers, or rather unbelievers, and enemies of the Christian faith. Let me get it straight, which side Augustine thinks. <laughs> he thinks it's supposed to be in there, and he thinks people who took it out are unbelievers, enemies of the Christian faith. Inasmuch that after, I suppose, of it giving their wives impunity, impunity of sinning, they struck out from their copies of the gospel this that our Lord did in pardoning the woman taken in adultery, as if he had granted leave of sinning who said, go and sin no more. Augustine is saying, hey, I don't want my wife out there committing adultery. Rip out that passage. That's what he said, well, how he thinks it got, got out of John in the first place. Now, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. But I think, it, without a doubt, without a doubt, it historically is an accurate thing. We're not just quoting anything, and that's why it's in your Bible this morning. All right. Those of you who just tuned out, went to the Bahamas, thinking, why are we talking about text of variants? Tune back in, because now we're going to look at the passage. John 7, 53, <coughs> excuse me, through 8, 11. I'm just going to read the passage through, and then we're going to look at some interesting things going on here. Then each went to his own home. Now, if you remember, those of you who were around, last week we took a, a week off to commission uh, Jason and Krista Erno uh, to Asia. They have made it, by the way, and they're doing fine. Um, but Jesus is at this feast in Jerusalem, and he's teaching at the feast. And it's October, September, October of uh, 32, and he's going to be crucified in, in April, March of 33. So it's coming up towards the end of his life. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, one of the things that you got to see here is, just in, in 53, it says, each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and the next morning he gets up, and he goes to the temple courts. Where does Jesus live? Jesus is a homeless guy. Jesus never had a home. That's, what, that's the only meaning you can get out of it. He just went to his own home. But Jesus 
went to the Mount of Olives and slept under a tree or a park bench with some paper on it. Jesus is a homeless guy. He says that foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, I don't have a house. I'm a homeless guy. See a homeless guy in the street? It just might be Jesus. No, nah, nah, probably not, but, but Jesus didn't have a home. Okay, at dawn, then he appears at the temple courts, and he's going to gather people around, and they're going to teach him. So this crowd gathers again. He's going to teach him. Here we go. Here's where the plot thickens. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Okay, so there's this crowd, like a crowd right here. And these guys, Jesus is just going to get ready to teach her. Maybe he is teaching. All of a sudden there's this ruckus. They come forward. They bring this woman. They make her stand right here. She was caught in adultery. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Not just this is rumored that this woman was having adultery. No, she was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The trap was this. Jesus, our law says that someone who's caught in adultery, this woman, should be killed publicly. Stoning even, perhaps. The trap was Roman law forbid anyone but Romans to execute people. It was murder otherwise. See the trap there? It's tricksy. If you say stoner, then you're breaking Roman law. But if you say don't stoner, then you're breaking God's law. <laughs> gotcha. Look at Jesus, he's good. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. By the way, whenever you're faced with a hard question, like in school and your professor asks you a hard question, just do that, just bend down. Hmm. <laughs> While they kept on questioning, they're hounding him, what are you going to do? He straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Here's the deal. The first person that threw the stone was the accuser. Okay, so if I brought a charge against you and we were going to stone you to death in the Old Testament days, the first person to do it was the first person to throw a stone was the accuser. The one that says, you have done this, all right? He's saying, okay, if any of you is going to be an accuser to stone this woman, anyone who here is without sin or to stay in the way sinless, go ahead, chuck it. Go ahead, man. Have at it. I think it's interesting too because Jesus is one cool cat. All right? So look at, look at what the passage says. It says he bends, bends over, starts writing in the sand. We don't know what he... Man, is there speculation about what he wrote. It, doesn't, it just says he began writing. He could have been playing tic-tac-toe. I don't know what he was doing. We don't know what he was doing. But man, there's speculation. Oh, it's kind of a fun Google search. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. He stands up, he says that, and then, and then, and then so this woman's standing here. Jesus is somewhere over here, whatever. He, he stands up, he says that, and look what it says next. It says again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Like, he just, you know, okay, go ahead. And he starts doodling in the sand again. He's just waiting for the thud, thud, thud. It's like, hey, whatever. If you're going to do that, you know. He's just the coolest cat. He's not worried about, oh, no, 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 don't do it. No, he doesn't say that. 
pardon the hue there. Uh, he doesn't do that. He just, he's just the coolest cat. He just bends over and says, I'll begin writing again. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. You see this crowd? This crowd is happening. This crowd just leaving one by one by one. Jesus over there bent over writing something in the sand. This woman is standing there. Jesus straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, go a couple here. Yeah, there you go. Um, you got some major collision of agendas here. And I see three, and they're just the three parties involved in this. The first party is the religious rulers. This, uh, by the way, this particular uh, uh, count, this, the woman caught in adultery, this particular account is fodder for a lot of very good art. And uh, I just picked three here that kind of <laughs> prove my agenda. But uh, this is one account here. Uh, I like it for some reasons. Other reasons I think it happened a little bit differently. Obviously, there'd been a little more space because but it's hard to put space in a, you know, on a canvas. So you got to give the guy slack. But I like it because look at the, look at the guys. Not Jesus, not the woman, but look at all the guys there. Look at that dude in the left, bottom left. Not only has he got the you know, face of the meanest demon you've ever seen, but look at his hat. He's got like four or five stones already to go. You know, oh man, I come to a stoning and I come prepared. I bring me some good biscuit. I like the biscuit-sized ones because they can really, you know, and he's got one in his hand. He is ready to go, man. What's the agenda of the rulers? The agenda of the rulers, was it justice? No, it wasn't justice. The, the agenda of the rulers, wouldn't, these Pharisees and teachers of the law would never go to Jesus to get a ruling. They loathed him. It was not to get justice. So what was it? It was to completely entrap Jesus Christ. Verse 5, you don't have to go there, but just it says, In the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Think about it. Think about it. Your hatred for Jesus Christ has come to this, where you, you, you I'm going to insinuate here a little bit, you entrap a woman, I'll explain why I think that in just a minute, you entrap a woman into an adulterous situation, you not to be, be trying to be too graphic here, but you physically pull her out of the bed. You bring her there. She's probably, that's one of the reasons I don't like this, she's probably barely dressed. You bring her right before Jesus and you make accusations against her so that you can entrap Jesus. It, your hatred for Christ has come to this, that you're involved in entrapment, possibly, for sure, public humiliation of someone Wanting someone to die a brutal death? It's crazy. That's how blind they were with rage, how much they hated Christ. That's one agenda. The religious rulers, ha, we've got you. Jesus. Jesus is right back at you. 
Jesus, his answers. Now, Jesus is a master of answering questions. It's, it's a great little study sometime. If you're in education or you're in all kind of business training or whatever, to look at the questions that were asked of Jesus and the questions that he asks and how he deals with things. I've got great news for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're asking questions, Jesus Christ loves to answer your questions. I got bad news for you this morning though too. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ or if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are demanding an answer, you're demand God, I want to know why people suffer. If you're all good, why do people suffer? You will tell me. Jesus is a master master. We've seen this over and over in the book of John and other places. He's a master of giving you back slippery answers. And you'll get slippery answers. If you demand of God, if you demand of Christ, the bad news is, is you'll get answers like, go ahead. He who has no sin, go ahead. And the, the last agenda is the woman. I like this one because it does show her barely clothed. As if she had just got ripped out of this bed in the act of adultery. Now, here, here's, here's the question you should be asking. If you haven't asked it already. The obvious question of when they drag this woman here is, where's the guy? Right? If you caught him in the very act, hello, takes two to tango. Where's the guy? I'm making a contention. I'm making, you know, I think it was entrapment. Could be, possibly. If nothing else, they let him go. Why is the guy not there? How does she feel? How does this, how would you like the worst thing in your life to be public before everyone? People ready with rocks to throw at you. What's going on inside of her? It's just got to be horrible, Horrific. Whether she knows anything about who Jesus is or not, he's some religious person. She might have known who he was. He's coming to Jerusalem, became a fanfare issue. He's been at the feast now about a week. And here she is, caught in the, caught in the act of adultery, and she's brought right before him. It's sin to begin with, and it's sexual sin sec uh, secondarily, which always had, carries with it a level of shame. Because it has this element of privacy and now it's public. and We're shouting it. We caught this woman in the very act of adultery. What's going on with her? She has to feel completely set up. She has to feel completely shamed. She has to feel like in a few seconds she's going to feel the thud of rocks. Now, I've never seen a public stoning. I don't ever want to see a public stoning. Think about that for a minute. That has to be a horrible way to go. I mean, that would hurt, but it doesn't really like kill you. It wouldn't be like lynching or, or chopping off one's head or, or whatever. You know, that would kill you. But a stone would just hurt over and over and over and over and over and over again until finally you become unconscious and they keep throwing stones at you. And finally it does kill you. She has to be fearing that's what's going to happen. This is a real moment for her. It's these three agendas going on. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, and he, yes, he is one of my, my heroes, C.S. Lewis. 
smoking a big stogue there in that picture. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, that is sexual sin, as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting. The pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside of me. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course it is better to be neither. The ironic thing here is this woman is not condemned, but the men who bring her are. What's the takeaway for us in all this? What do we, how can we apply this? I think there's five quick things. So we prepare for a time of worship and communion. I think there's five quick things. First of all, judgment is real. I don't think we'd be doing this passage justice if you really didn't think that judgment was real. There will come a day where you will stand before Jesus Christ with a crowd of people around, naked. And, they're, they're, and he will judge you. Judgment is deserved. As Americans, um, we have this mentality that we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In America, we also have this concept, in our, even in our Christianity, that we deserve to go to heaven. We deserve that. And anyone who doesn't get the opportunity to hear the gospel hasn't had a fair shake. They didn't get a chance. And it's true. I mean, people deserve a right to hear about it. But, but I think we have the wrong analogy. The analogy is we're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, a thousand miles from land, drowning. You don't deserve anything. And by the fact that Christ comes and offers you a, a lifeboat is a beautiful thing. But let me tell you what. You, you won't appreciate the cross. You won't appreciate what Jesus Christ did. You won't appreciate communion until you realize that you are that woman standing there deserving rocks. Until then, the cross is just a nice thing to wear in your earrings. It's not really, oh my goodness, I need this. Judgment is deserved. Mercy is a gift. You don't earn gifts. You don't earn anything. You don't do anything for them. You just receive them. You just take them. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you want to become one, it's simple. Just say, I deserve to be that woman and Jesus, I will take you taking my sins away from me. Mercy is a gift. The, the concept we have in America is that there's good guys and there's bad guys. And we, we hear about the, the bad guys on the 5 o'clock news, like last night, a guy came to my door here while I was studying, and, and he said that a guy had been shot down at, by Mary's place. He was telling me all about it. And I picture this guy, this gangbanger driving by and shooting three shots, I guess twice in the kidneys and once somewhere else, at least that's what this guy told me. And this gangbanger driving by, and my mind says he's a bad guy. And he's a bad guy. He is a bad guy. Don't shoot people. But we're all bad guys. We all got the black hat on. Don't, we don't have the white hat on. We have the black hat. 
Mercy is a gift. Fourthly, receiving mercy is very costly. Hear what he said to the woman? I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. That's just going to leave you there. Go and leave it. In order to become a follower of Jesus Christ, there's, there's two simple things. It's repentance and faith. It's very simple. Whatever you're hanging on to that is not God that gives you life with this stand, you have to let go of it. And you go over to this stand, which represents God, and you hang on to it. Repentance means turning from something, and faith means turning to something. It's very costly. Billy Graham has said uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely free, but it'll cost you everything you have. That's totally true. It's totally free. It's a free gift. But it requires you to be willing to say, I will leave everything and follow Jesus. It's a requirement. And lastly, as I think of the woman, and I think of her standing there, and I don't, we don't know exactly what age she is, but she's at least of an adult age. One of the thoughts that have to be going through her mind, maybe not in these exact words, but something like that is, here, this is it. This is what it's come down to. This is how I'm going to go. I was caught in adultery. This is my life. Am I who I want to be? It's the fall. Something about the fall gives us all this adventure about a new start. Many of you are just starting college. Many of you are starting new jobs. Uh, I don't know what it is. Something about fall just makes you feel alive. Let me just ask you a question. This is your life. Are you who you want to be? Are, are you who you want to be? And if not, if not, let me tell you who you do want to be. You want to be full of Jesus. I know that. I don't even know your questions, and I know the answer. Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about a list of doctrines and a bunch of things to believe. I'm talking about a vital, healthy, lick your fingers and stick them in the outlet of Jesus kind of relationship here. It's transformative. That's who you want to be. I know it. I don't know what, what your problems are. I don't know what your stresses are. I don't know the areas in your life that have brought disappointment. But I do know where, where you want to go because God has designed each and every human being to be there. Are you who you want to be? We're going to move to a communion in, in a moment. I would encourage you as you take communion to think that through. Jesus Christ, today, today I want to set myself on a course whether you're a follower of Christ yet or not. Let me tell you a little bit about how we practice communion here at Hope Community Church. In a little bit, the, the band will come up to play and uh, uh, there'll be a moment of silence and that's your opportunity just to, to ponder uh, your life. And what is it the Lord would speak to you by his Holy Spirit? We believe that the Holy Spirit does speak to you and he would speak to you if you just ask him, Jesus, how do you want me to be? What do, you, what do you want me to do? Is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? Show me right now. We ask for just a little bit of time of that. And that's your opportunity to do that. The band will begin to play at any time during the six, five, six songs today. You can come forward. You can receive communion up here. Break off a piece of bread. Take a cup. You can eat it here. You can sit down in the front pew. Uh, you, can, you can go back to your seat, however you want to do it. There's also a table back there and... One upstairs, two upstairs, and uh, there's tables upstairs also as well. There'll be people down front. We'd love to pray for every single person here. You can just whisper in our ear what you'd like us to pray for you. 
Uh, if nothing, just said, just like a general prayer. We'll just pray for you generally. Uh, we ask that, that uh, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, that you'd abstain from the table. That's all we ask, is that you're a follower of Christ. You don't need to belong to this church or any church. Just that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me close and, and thank the Lord for, for his mercy and for this meal we're about to take. Let's pray together. Jesus, I think of this woman, I think of someone who probably felt that the thuds would be coming. And so, Lord, that's what I think of when I think of the communion table. I think of the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. Each one of us, by nature and by choice, are sinners. And Lord, we, we deserve the thuds of the rocks. So that's it right before we take communion represents. And then as we take communion, we realize that there was someone who came to stand in our way. Not in this account, but if it were a parallel to the cross, the rocks would have been thrown and Jesus Christ, you would have stood right in front of her and took every single one of them. God, I pray I pray against a spirit that could even be pervading in this room of boredom with that, with that beautiful message. That Christ regarded me enough to stand the way of the rocks that are being hurtled. Oh God, would that never become something we're bored with? Something that we would rejoice with. And that's what the other side of the table represents. Us having received that forgiveness. Being like that woman who said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life a sin. God, there's just so much power there. And I pray we'd live like that. We live as people who are forgiven. And the power of that. We could forgive others. We could treat other people with respect because of the way you treated us. God, help us not just to have this be an empty exercise, but something where we take it very seriously. Jesus, I pray in this room, aside this size, there are people who are pondering where they're at with you. I pray even this, this morning that you'd give them the courage to step across that line and to say, Jesus Christ, I want to follow you. You're worthy of following. I will leave my life of sin. Lord, there are some in this room who maybe followed you for 20 years and on the outside they're looking good, but the reality is they're becoming more and more like the religious rulers. Oh, God, protect us from Phariseeism. God, break our hearts if we start to be that way. That's the way worse sin than the adultery. Every one of those things, Lord God, we ask by your spirit that you'd show us and you'd grant us repentance to change and then you'd have us come forward and take communion and say, it is finished. It's taken care of. I am forgiven. I am not condemned. So come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and speak to us. We thank you for this meal we are about to partake of. In Jesus' name, amen.